I am so honored to be with you guys this morning and to be sharing um, specifically on this passage. So we're going through Song of Solomon, which is the love book of the Bible. And today we are on chapter four, which is the most erotic and sexual of them. So this is not a sermon for your five-year-olds. That's why they're there downstairs. Um, And we're going to just talk really plainly today about sex and God's design for it. And I'm so honored to do this with you. I'm so glad that I get to be doing this with you because um, we all have stories to share, and I will share some of mine in a minute after I read this chapter. But in many ways, I feel like um, God has been prepping me to share this with you for the past 15 years. And so, what an honor. And buckle up, because we've got 30 minutes. So here we go. (laughs) Um, Our reading today is from 2 Samuel, and it is chapter 22, verses 21 to 33. This, just to give you a little bit of context, is King David's Song of Praise. And it is near the kind of end of David's time, after David's been delivered from some really difficult stuff. Um, For those of you who don't know David's story very well, David um, was a king, um, and he was known as a man after God's own heart. But some details of his story are that he was not perfect, which none of us are. And one of the things David is most famous for is when he, as a married man, saw another married woman naked, bathing on her roof, caught his attention, He committed adultery with her, sent her husband to the front lines of war so he would be killed, and then took her as his wife. And yet he is called a man after God's own heart. And this is what he says about himself in chapter 22 of 2 Samuel. He says, The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are laid before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. I don't know about you guys, but when I read that, I was like, is this guy being honest? And does this really apply to me? Like, to the pure, you show yourself pure. I know that I am not pure. So God, how do you show yourself to me as pure? But here's the clincher, verse 29. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my darkness into light. David is able, and I'm going to stop there. David is able to, at the end of his life, despite all of the things that he has done, including some pretty major mess-ups, he's able to say, it's the Lord who turns my darkness into light. And so I can stand before God, righteous and pure, and known that I am loved and blessed. And that's what we get to do today. And so um, let's pray, and then we will dive in a little bit more. God, thanks for being with us. Thanks that you have each one of us here this morning for a reason. God, I submit this next little bit of time that we have together to you. I ask that your words of truth would speak, that your words of healing would speak. God, this is a topic that um, we sometimes disjoin from you, but sex is your design. Our sexuality, wherever we're at in our life, is your design. We're created in your image. 
every single part of us are created in your image. And so I ask that you would just soften our hearts, that your spirit would protect this room, protect our minds and our spirits as we are listening to your word and so deeply desiring to draw closer to you and to live more truly into who you created us to be in every way. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. My goal today, God's goal today, is not to rip open wounds because we have a really gentle God. A really gentle God. And um, I just wanted you to know our story because sometimes it's so easy to think, it's just me, right? This is so hard for just me, right? And it's not, it's not just you. But we can also say God redeems. And like David said, it's God who turns my darkness into light. And folks, I have yet to find a limit to that in my life or in anyone else's. So let's dive into this text and give you some context. I was looking at your bulletin and I think something got a little lost in the bulletin because I deviated from the Bethany norm and I have four points, not three. They just left my fourth point off. I don't appreciate that. Just giving you a heads up, there's a fourth one. Um, if you want to jot it down, the fourth topic is deepening relationship oneness. So we will not be stopping on power and invitation. So preamble, the context, the backstory, what's going on in Song of Solomon chapter four? I am going to read some of this to you and we'll read the whole chapter um, as we go today. But here are the first few verses. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Remember that verse. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. I don't know about you, but when I've read Song of Solomon in the past, I've been like, who's talking? What are they saying? Why pomegranates? I don't understand. This sounds sort of romantic, but I can't even hardly get what they're actually talking about and who's talking. And so I want to give you a little bit of context. So in chapter three, and Prentice preached on this last week, there's so much density in these chapters. And one of the things that he didn't have time to touch on are chapter three, verses six through 11. It's the end of the chapter. And in chapter three, what I want you to picture is that it's this woman and the lover of her soul, the, the one who loves her perfectly. And they're in bed together and they've just had this beautiful, intimate time. And then she starts telling him about something. And there's a disagreement between scholars about what she's telling him about. Did she have a bad dream? Did she actually experience some sort of trauma and she's recounting it to him? But she basically describes this scene that I'm not going to read to you, but it's a scene full of darkness. Um, she, used, she talks about somebody coming out from the desert and there's smoke and there's warriors and there's a chariot bed and it's guarded by 60 soldiers all bearing swords and there, this smoke that's going up. And so it's this really dark imagery. And she's recounting this to her lover. 
And the smoke in that chapter is meant to reference to an incense or offering. And the man that she's talking about in chapter 3, most scholars believe to be King Solomon, who had this huge harem of women that he acquired for his, his own pleasure in an attempt to build his own paradise. And so she's saying these women are like offerings on Solomon's bed temple, basically. In so much else of Song of Solomon, she's referred to as a garden, and she's talking about this lush vegetation. But in the end of chapter 3, she's talking about a desert. So there's this sharp contrast in language. And she's referencing these soldiers, 60 soldiers, which is double the amount that King David would have had. And so it's just get the idea that this is this dark, heavily guarded, lots of warriors, all for the sake of Solomon's pleasure at the expense of this woman. This is a hard thing to talk about because many of us, especially women, um, have experienced some form of objectification at some point in our life, and that can be to varying degrees. And we're not going to go deep into that today, but I just want to let you know that you are in my heart. And I've heard some of the stories of women who've walked these journeys, and I just want you to know that you have a tender God, and that you are seen, and that you are loved, and that that's not God's design. And for the men in here who that may be part of your story too, the same is true. So, Song of Solomon 3 speaks to the presence of wounding into systems of power. And so this is what this woman is telling her lover about. And then he launches in in chapter 4, and this is what takes us to point two in your bulletin, that heart shaping. And there's a tenderness and an intimacy here. That's what I want you to take away, those first verses of chapter four. So she says, I had this terrible thing happen to me, or I brought in these lies, I brought in these beliefs that have broken me, or I brought in this desire that I had that somewhere... Something took a hold of besides God, and it's twisted it, and this is what I bring. And this person who knows her so well, with this deep tenderness, starts describing her. Now, a couple really profound observations, I think they're profound observations, maybe they're not, but a couple beautiful observations from this text. The word for love or lovely in this passage is the word Raya, which denotes friendship. This is a love that is devoid of sexuality. This is a deep knowing, deep friendship that he is describing her with. And she's saying, this is what, this is this dream, this is this memory, this is this event that happened, and what it told me about who I am. And he says, no, this is who you are. And he starts with her eyes, and you can't look into the eyes of a person without seeing them as a person. He starts with her eyes, and then he starts at the top of her head, if you look at the verse, and he slowly works his way down, intimately, tenderly naming her and who she is in this deep friendship sort of way. And he refers to her neck. Remember I told you the thousand shields? He's reframing what she told him. There were 60 warriors. They all had swords. And he's like, nope. That's not power. You have power. Your neck is hanging with a thousand shields. There's no weaponry here. There's a shield that's out that's protecting you. You are protected. I see you. You are loved. He's not saying, I am your protector. He is describing her power 
and renaming her. I think that we often try to rename ourselves or we don't even realize that maybe we need to be renamed. But God comes in with this immense tenderness using other people in our lives and slowly begins to rename us. And what I really want um, this morning, I know that we've got many people in our congregation who are not married and I don't want you to be checking out and be like, well, this is a talk about sex and I'm not supposed to be having it or I'm not having it and so this is not for me. This is for you because we are each created in the image of God and that includes our sexuality, which we each have. Another observation is that this first part, this tenderness, this is the only part in all of Song of Solomon where he refers to her as his bride. There is so much intimacy in here contrasted with that power that there is in chapter 3. He then says in chapter six, or verse 6, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. So he tenderly goes down, naming her, and then says, There is no flaw in you. You are altogether beautiful. And then there's this hinge verse, verse 8, and he invites her to come away and to retreat, which is so beautiful, but it's an invitation. He's not like, I got the bags packed, you get in the car, buckle up, like, we're out of here, sister. He's like, come, there's this deep tenderness and an invitation that he offers. And then verse 9, he says, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. This is not actually his sister. That would be a word that was used to denote the depth of relationship, the all-encompassing nature of their relationship. This is not just a sexual relationship. This is not just a friendship relationship. This is the deepest of relationships that are possible between two humans. And that's what he's referring to by calling her all of these things. But I want to spend a little bit of time on that phrase, you have stolen my heart. The translation of that, one, one understanding is, you have literally made my heartbeat quicken, which I think most of us, all of us, could say like, oh yeah, I've experienced that at some point by a look from somebody or a thought or something has triggered a further beating, a faster beating of my heart. But a deeper look at that translation actually means you have shaped my heart. And the heart would not be understood as the thing that's pounding, providing blood through your entire body. This would be the entire essence of a person's being. The entire essence. He's saying, you are my essence shaper. I wish somebody had told me that when I was really young. Because that's a great reason to honor my sexuality. Because what that's saying is, this is the most intimate of gifts, the most treasured of spaces, the most sacred of ground. And when we share it with someone, they shape the essence of who we are. And essence shaping is not something to be doled out, right? That's something to be given so, so carefully. Our culture would like to tell us that sexual intimacy then catalyzes emotional and relational intimacy but it's the opposite. 
It's the opposite. Relational, spiritual nakedness is a catalyst for intimacy in the bedroom, in the sexual department. Moving on to this acknowledgement of power and invitation. So he said, you're shaping my heart. How delightful is your love? How much more pleasing is your love than wine and any fragrance of your perfume than any spice? And then in verse 12, he says, you are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. So in one verse, he three times says, you are locked up, you are enclosed, you are sealed. And it is this beautiful model of the acknowledgement of another person's boundaries. He's, he intimately knows her, and yet there is no ownership staked. There is no possessiveness claimed. There is no right claimed. And I think so often our culture tells us, you exist for pleasure, everything exists for instant gratification, sex is an issue of appetite. And we can even say that in the church, within marriage. We say that, well, you know, you just got to, some people need this, need it more often than others. I'm really trying to avoid gender stereotypes because uh, I think they can cause a lot of damage. Um, and I will let you apply this to your own marriage or relationships as it's fit. But what we do is we, we let the culture influence. And of course it makes sense. This is not a flaw on our part. We get inundated with this everywhere. Everywhere. We are told that our bodies exist for our pleasure and for the pleasure of others. And you better shape it up and ship it out. But that is not at all what is modeled in Song of Solomon chapter 4. Instead, in verse 12, he says, you are locked, you're a sealed garden, you've got walls. He's describing this lush, this beautiful place that he knows, and he's expressing his interest, but not at all in a way that is entitled. Sometimes we... Um, we can use the power of our sexuality um, <clears throat> as a weapon, and we can use that um, to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish, or we can use it to um, wound someone who's close to us. And I know that this can happen in a lot of marriages because I have seen it happen in ours, and a withdrawal or a shame or an anger or something else. And this chapter is saying, sex and power are completely incompatible. God's design for sex is equality, not power, not wielding it over one another, not guilt, not shame. Um, <clears throat> there is a professor who's written a commentary on Song of Solomon, and he says this, repression will never in the end work. Our darkness will always in the end break out. It is just as well then that God is in truth no legitimator of self-repression or the repression of others, but in reality, the bringer of life and liberation. Only as we present ourselves as we are in all our brokenness before this God and before others whom we trust, and only as we seek his healing presence in our lives will we move beyond brokenness to wholeness. And then listen to this. Only then, for many of us, will the words gentle and erotic come in time to appear well-suited, and will the words sex and power be seen to be deeply incompatible. Only then will the words gentle and erotic be well-suited and the words sex and power 
be completely incompatible. But that's not what the world tells us at all. But thank goodness it is what God tells us. He tells us, I have created you to enjoy. I have created you to love your body, all of your body. And I have created you within the context of a relationship that is shaping the essence of your being in a direction that you know honors me to enjoy this aspect of being created in my image. So we see there's this tenderness, there's this intimacy, and then we see there's an acknowledgement of her walls and of her boundaries. He's acknowledging her power, her right. He, I love that nowhere in this chapter does he come in with this machismo stance. Not at all. He, he thinks she's absolutely amazing, and he's not threatened by it. Not threatened by it at all. And then they move into this deepening intimacy and relationship. Um, some of the, the original text for this, if we unpack what this really looks like, is very, very erotic. Um, which I'm like, well, good news. That's great. Because I would like to really enjoy this part of my being. And God has a model for it. The, the, uh, this is not just a, this is something that you should do, and it's purely for these purposes. This is not, this is like, we're talking about, fe- there's language of feasting and fragrance and flowing. Like, this is abundant enjoyment, which is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Do you remember how I told you that in that first section, he was talking, the word that he was using for love denoted friendship? After he says, you have captivated my heart, he's still using that, we still hear the word love, but he changes the word he's using. And he's now using the Hebrew word dod, which is the most erotic sexual love that there is. Do you see the beauty there? Tenderly naming her with the depth of knowledge of who she is based on this friendship saying, you are altogether lovely, my darling. There is no flaw in you. You are shaping the essence of my being. With just one glance of your eyes, you're shaping the core of who I am. I honor your boundaries and your walls. I acknowledge them and know that they are powerful and enclose the most beautiful, lush place of enjoyment and life and thriving. And I would really like to enjoy that, if you would let me. Verse 6, which I read to you, but he says, until the day breaks and the shadows flee. This is not a two-minute quickie that he's describing. He's describing an all-night savoring of one another. How lovely. Our culture does not elevate that. I mean, like, there's some songs who talk about, like, girl, let's do it all night long, but I'm like, I'm not getting the same vibe from those songs as I'm getting from Song of Solomon, chapter four. There's this sweetness and this tenderness and this intimacy and this length of time. And the temptation can rush in and fix it fast. 
whatever lies that we've brought in from whatever area in our life, whatever woundings, whether it's culture or previous relationships, current relationships, an understanding of God that is incompatible with the love and the tenderness here. We'd like a quick fix. We'd like our appetites filled. We'd like them done now. My snap is not as good as Richard's. I need to work on that. And we want it, we want it immediately. But this passage tells us all night long, this is a slow journey. And I can tell you from my journey, 16 years of a journey, and I'm still learning things. Even this week, I learned something new. It's still too tender to share, maybe someday. But the point is, is that we learn slowly, and God is tender and gracious with us. So the pressure is off to walk out of here and have this all right by this afternoon at 2, okay? The pressure is off. But enjoy the process of learning. In the remainder of chapter 4, he talks so much about fragrance. And I don't know if you guys know this, but your olfactory nerve right here inside your nose where you take your smells in, is intimately linked to the part of your brain that is connected with emotion and memory. And that's why smell is so significant. And I'm sure you've all had the experience where you're walking somewhere and all of a sudden you're hit with the smell and you're all of a sudden not where you are, right? Like you're transported back to this other place. And so this emphasis on smell is also really significant because he's again noting, you are making a lasting imprint on me, on my emotions, on my memories, your smell, your essence, your fragrance. This process works for her, right? Remember where we started there in bed, she's telling him about this really dark situation and he starts with this tenderness, moves his way down, says, you're shaping my essence. I honor you, I respect your boundaries, I respect your space. Um, there, in verse 15, um, some translations would say that he is speaking, some would say that she is speaking, maybe they both did, and it's great. It actually is beside the point. But it says, you are a garden fountain, fountain, a well of water streaming down from Lebanon. I don't feel like that's super subtle when we know it's talking about sex, but, and that's great. So she's saying, like, this is working. This is really working for me. I feel drawn in. That emotional, relational intimacy is linked to our sexual intimacy. And then she says, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. So there she acknowledges that the garden is theirs. But he never says, that's mine. He waits for the invitation. And she says, this is yours. Such a beautiful model of this deepening relationship. There's no shame anywhere in this verse. None. I think a lot about, not a lot, but I have thought multiple times about the term making love. I'm like, where did that come from? And what does that actually mean? And as God has transformed the lies that I brought to our marriage, it's begun to make more and more sense. And I've begun to see when there is this essence shaping 
by one who truly knows me and loves me because they see me as God sees me, that love is actually created. That this is a gift that God gave us to put more love in the world. And I'm not trying to subtly speak about like procreating actual humans. Like that's another conversation. I'm talking about God's life and fullness. She says in verse 16, let this fragrance spread abroad. She's not promoting some sort of like global orgy. What she is saying here is when sexuality is lived into the way God designed it, let this spread everywhere and transform the way that we see our bodies and the way that we see the bodies of others and the way that we disconnected that from God. Culture tells us sex first, emotional, spiritual intimacy second. The culture tells us sexual compatibility is predetermined, not a result of a deeper knowing. The culture teaches us safety for our bodies when we're engaging sexually, but not our hearts and our souls. The culture tells us sex outside of marriage is more exciting, more erotic, more sexy than sex inside of marriage. This passage teaches the exact opposite. Look at how much they enjoy each other. Look at how tenderly they love each other. Look at how deeply they know each other. Unashamed, totally present. He's not consumed with some other thought. She's not consumed with other thought. It's a retreat away from everything else just to be them, perfectly responding to one another. Proverbs 5, 15 to 19 says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. What a beautiful blessing. What a beautiful blessing. I know that not all of you in here are in a stage in your life where you have that beautiful doe in your life. Maybe you don't ever want to, and that's fine. God still created you, your entire being, for a purpose. And we don't have the time to unpack all of that today. 35 minutes is not nearly enough time to try to talk about the entirety of this. But what I hope you hear as we close our time together today is that our God is a tender God who intimately knows you and loves you and created every part of your being, who designed you, including your sexuality, to be a pure manifestation of who he is. And that wherever you're at in your journey, whether you're single and never want to be in a relationship, whether you're dating, engaged, married, married and struggling in this department, married and thriving in this department, wherever you're at, God is there with you, and he tenderly knows you, and he says, you are all together lovely, my darling. There is no flaw in you. We're going to move into a time of worship. We have our prayer team here. I'm available um, after the service to pray with you, but our prayer team members are going to come up here. You guys, prayer is not like a public confessional. 
So if you get up and walk to someone to receive prayer, no one in this room is going to, nor are you allowed to think, mm, I got a sexual sin they need prayer for. Like, that's not our business, okay? And Satan uses shame in this department, especially, he thrives on shame and secrecy in our sexuality. That is fertile ground for Satan to feed us lies and to wreak more havoc in our lives. And so if you have something that you would like prayer for related to this or something else, we'd invite you to come up to somebody with the prayer team. We would love to pray with you, pray for you. God does healing through prayer. Jesus prayed a ton, a ton. That tells us something about the importance of prayer. And if that's not something that you feel like you want right now, I really invite you to use this time to just submit yourself tenderly before a God who knows you and loves you and ask for him to speak truth into your life in an area, in this, in this specific department of your life where maybe Satan has wedged a little hold and ask for God's truth and his naming of you to start right now.